This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Ed Correa, Texas Rangers pitcher, card number 227. This is the Jack Hay episode. Oh, Mary, what are you doing with Lester? I can't. It's, it's my best Jack Hay. We will get to Ed in just a minute, but we do have some follow-up from previous episodes. And first, about Joey Cora. In the Joey Cora episode, we pointed out that he had an unfactual, a fake news fun fact His card said he, quote, was member of 1984 Olympic baseball team. Puerto Rico, where he was born, did not make the 1984 Olympics. They did make the 1988 Olympics and won a bronze medal. But that wouldn't have made sense on his 1988 tops card because those Olympics had not yet been played. He didn't play for the U.S. Olympic team, even though he had gone to college in the U.S., maybe by that point, would have qualified for the U.S. Olympic team. We pointed out that this didn't really make any sense. And thank you to Twitter user and new listener at W Coast Capper, the Padres collection, for pointing us to this article in the Cape Cod Times. In this article from the year 2000, it says that the last time Team USA was here, And I'm going to read directly from this because this line doesn't really make any sense. The last time Team USA was here, it beat the Cape League's best one five to four. So I think what they mean here is that that Team USA beat the Cape League's best. Yeah, period. Put a period period there. Or a comma five to four. Yeah. With a lineup that included future major leaguers, Mark McGuire, Oda B. McDowell, et cetera. The Cape League MVP that night was the Chatham A's own Joey Cora, who also went on to star in the big leagues. So Joey Cora, while he did not play for Team USA, he played against them in the run-up to their Olympic performance. As we recall from previous episodes, Team USA went on that 36-city tour. Included in that was a visit to the Cape Cod League, and their opponent was Joey Cora. No further details about Joey's MVP performance in that game, but thank you very much to at... W Coast Capper for that. Yeah, thank you for that. We're always glad to get new listeners and always happy to get corrections or further details to beef up our episodes and our research. I should also point out that the Padres collection was quoting from Dan Good. Dan Good is the author of a Ken Caminiti book and a reporter. So thank you to Dan Good and W Coast Capper for pointing us to Dan's direction. Looks like, David, there's something else in the queue here about Rick Rushel. We always love to talk about Rick Rushel, Big Daddy Rick Rushel. On Twitter, I posted about a Illinois House resolution. The aim of this resolution is to recognize the life achievements and career and Hall of Fame-worthy credentials of Walter William Billy Pierce. Billy Pierce pitched for the White Sox back in the 50s and a very good pitcher, borderline Hall of Famer. The representative who introduced this is a big White Sox fan. I tweeted about this and said, maybe the podcast will need to go to the state capitol to try to get Rick Rushel included into this resolution. In response to that, I did not tag Rick Rushel or anything, but I think a person named Beth Rushel, who I gather is a daughter of Rick Rushel, found that tweet and responded that in 1985, Rick was recognized by the U.S. House of Representatives. 
And she included the remarks, extension of remarks, tribute to Rick Russell by the Honorable William O. Lipinski. Bill Lipinski was a longtime Southside congressman and a big White Sox fan. His son, Dan Lipinski, took over his seat. His son, Dan Lipinski, though, while also a big baseball fan, was a Cubs fan, though he represented the South Side of Chicago. But Bill Lipinski, in 1985, wanted to recognize Rick Russell for his 1985 Comeback Player of the Year Award. That's a quite an honor to be recognized on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives, particularly by a guy who did not represent the district that you were playing in or ever played in. <laughs> so Bill Lipinski said, I want to congratulate Rick Russell on his refusal to give up when things were not going his way. His determination on and off the playing field is an inspiration to all of us. I wish him continued success in Pittsburgh. As we know, a couple of years later, he would be traded to San Francisco and continue that record of success, add a few more wins above replacement to his record and move up in the Hall of Stats. That's right. Hall of Stats, 136, with Billy Pierce at 102. So I think cases could be made for either player, but when Rick Russell is next eligible in 2025, this podcast will be firmly on the Rick Russell train. So looking forward to that. And thank you, Beth Russell, for commenting. And um, we're a big fan of Big Daddy Rick. And thank you all for sending in those comments you can reach out to us on Twitter. You can also email us at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. But now let's go to Ed Correa today. And why are we talking about Ed? Recently, another Correa has been in the news. Ah, you mean Chick Correa. I have another podcast with Chick called Music Magic with Chick Correa. Chick passed in 2021, but we made a lot of episodes of this podcast. Chick's one of the most nominated artists in music history with the Grammys. He's had 71 nominations. He's earned three Latin Grammy awards, the most of any artist in the best instrumental album category. My dad was a big fan of his when I was growing up and had those records around everywhere. But I, I haven't really seen him in the news, so I, maybe I missed it. I was talking about Angel Correa, who recently won the World Cup with Argentina. Aha, okay. Obviously. Uh, no, Carlos Correa. Of course, Carlos Correa signed with one-tenth of the major league teams over this offseason. This Correa, Ed Correa, is no direct relation to Carlos Correa, but we may come back to that later on with another connection that Ed had to Carlos. But this Correa, Edwin, didn't play in MLB beyond 1987, as we see the last line on his card was not great. He was only 21 years old at that point. But he has a very interesting Sabre bio, and his baseball reference page says that he played until he was 35 years old. So we'll walk through that very strange baseball reference page. His Sabre bio is by Malcolm Allen. For a guy with such a short major league career, I was very interested in this extensive Sabre bio. So thank you, as always, to the Society for American Baseball Research for your great work. Let's go to the front of 227, where Sherman Helmsley is not on this card, but Ed Correa is. Ed is on the mound. He is a right-handed pitcher, and he is staring you right in the face as he's about to throw a pitch at you. It's kind of a strange angle you, that you don't normally get, which is right back up the middle from the batter's box, and where you can see a very unfortunate shortstop grabbing his junk. Uh, infield adjustments were being made. <laughs> Great timing by this cameraman. 
Edwin has some very thin stirrups on these on this card. Yeah, those are really thin stirrups. It's like shoelace thin. I don't know who that guy is in the background. I would zoom in on the Jumbotron to try to get a better look, but that might take this podcast into explicit territory. Andy at High Heat Stats on the 88 Tops blog suspected it could have been Jerry Brown, not the governor of California, or Curtis Mm. Wilkerson, maybe, Mm. but unclear, very unclear. Uh, Hopefully they have blurred him out, sort of like he's in witness protection there. You know, everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, David. So I don't want to bias the jury by showing his face here as he's doing something somewhat indecent. This Rangers uniform is kind of boring. Edwin has a a tiny mustache, I think. Determined (laughs) face, boring uniform. It's a pretty good action shot. Let's go to the back of 227. And we have Ed Correa, pitcher, height 6'2", weight 205, right-handed thrower and batter, signed by the White Sox in 1982 as a free agent. Born April 29th, 1966 in Hato Puerto Rico, with a home in Carolina, Puerto Rico. Hato Rey is a former barrio in Rio Piedras, a city that was dissolved and merged with San Juan in 1951. So it's interesting that they still included this defunct city that wasn't really ever a city on his card, but we've seen that a few times where a neighborhood is included rather than a city because a large majority of these players, it might just say San Juan. Hato Rey means cattle herd of the king. At one point, it was a grazing area for cattle. Now, a portion of Hato Rey is home to many bank HQs called the Mia de Oro. This area is a pretty stark juxtaposition to other much more impoverished areas of Hato Rey. Ed grew up in Carolina. His dad was a police officer and his mother was a nurse. He had a sister and a younger brother, Ramser, who would also go on to play professional baseball. They lived two doors down from a distant cousin and national hero, Roberto Clemente. As we find with many of the guys from Puerto Rico here, there's some connection with Roberto Clemente, particularly guys born in the 50s and 60s, such a huge influence on young Puerto Rican players in the in the 80s. And Correa was only six years old when Roberto Clemente passed away, but he grew up playing youth ball with Roberto Clemente Jr. and Ruben Sierra. He was also on teams with pitchers Juan Neves and Jose Guzman, who would later go on to be his Texas Rangers teammate, and played with catchers Benito Santiago and Sandy Alomar as youth. He had really impressive performances in American Legion ball, striking out 11 of 12 batters in one of the games that he played in, and scouts were watching at this point. According to his 1987 Tops card, he was a basketball prospect, but we see that the top line on this card that you just read, it said he signed in 1982. He was only 16 years old. The White Sox saw some of those impressive performances, signed him as a free agent, and this is prior to 1989 when Puerto Rico became subject to the Major League draft. So at only 16 years old, he is signed as a free agent, and he goes to Sarasota, and he impressed there. He went 5-2 and two with a 2.75 ERA, 53 strikeouts in 59 innings. And the White Sox think they've got a real star in their hands. They protect him in the free agent draft. The next year at age 17, he moves up to A-ball at Appleton, 3-9 and nine with a 4.45 ERA, a little worse record, but still striking out near a batter an inning. 87 strikeouts in 95 innings. And he's still growing. He's 17 years old, throwing in the 90s. 
He had one more year at A-ball and had better results there in 1984. His ERA dropped to 3.44. He went 10-6. and six. The strikeout rate is still high. His control's a little better. His walks are down. So they move him up to double-A in 1985. He starts out 1-5 in, in eight starts, and his whip was 1.8. His ERA is close to 7. So the Sox call him to meet the team in Kansas City, meet with management in Kansas City. And Ed said, they told me I lost my confidence and I'm too young for that. So to get his confidence back, they send him back to A-ball where he is dominant. At Appleton, he goes 13-3 and with a 2.53 ERA and 18 starts. His whip drops down to near one and he struck out twice as many as he walked. And that takes us to a fun fact on the card. That's right, that Ed averaged 8.1 strikeouts per nine innings in the minors, which is a great sign for him for the future, and he earns himself a September call-up. So he plays five games in 1985. He makes his debut on September 18th. He was the youngest player in baseball when he was called up. He was the only player under age 20 in the major leagues. That debut on September 18th, he had a scoreless inning against the Angels. The next three games didn't go quite as well. He gave up six earned runs in four innings. But the Sox decided to give him a start in the final game of the season. He held the Mariners hitless through four innings and left with a 3-2 to two lead in the fifth inning. The bullpen held on, and Ed got his first Major League win. Must have seemed like a really great prospect for the Sox at that point. In the offseason, White Sox general manager Hawk Harrelson said that Correa was one of the five best pitching prospects in baseball. That tag stuck with him for a few years because he's still so young, even on this card. He's one of the best prospects on the White Sox. He's hitting the high 90s. So the White Sox are really looking to solidify their lineup heading into 1986. They had just finished in third, six games behind the Royals. So a pretty successful season for the White Sox. And after the season, they're looking to shore up their lineup to move into 1986 and maybe take a shot at winning the AL West. And that takes us to our This Way to the Clubhouse. And that's that Ed was traded by the White Sox to the Rangers with Scott Fletcher for Wayne Tolleson and Dave Schmidt on November 25th, 1985. The Rangers received Jose Moda December 12th, 1985. So we have a player that was thrown in later. This looks like a surprise because... Those guys, Dave Schmidt and Wayne Tolleson, they were both gone from Chicago by 1987. Rangers GM Tom Greaves said, Our scouts rated Correa as the White Sox' best minor league prospect. There's no doubt we got more in this trade than they did. The difference is they're shooting for 1986. As it turns out, the White Sox lose 90 games in 1986. Mm. Both Wayne Tolleson, Dave Schmidt, I think they were fine, but they didn't become White Sox legends or by any means. The Rangers did think highly of Correa. They had finished in last place the previous two seasons. They had a really young pitching staff, including Correa's childhood friend, Jose Guzman, and Bobby Witt, not Bobby Witt Jr., but the senior. Correa was the youngest of those pitchers, and Bobby Valentine said, I would probably rank him a little higher than the other fine young arms we have. Dodgers scout Mel Didier said Correa was the best-looking young pitcher he had seen since Doc Gooden. That offseason, Correa pitches in Puerto Rico, and he now has an effective curve and a changeup to go with his very good fastball. Things really looking up. So heading into 1986, the Rangers are in a bit of a jam because Charlie Huff is injured the first month, and they want to make sure that the rest of their staff, who's pretty young, doesn't lose their confidence. But things went pretty well. 
Guzman, Correa, and Witt made 92 of 162 starts for the Rangers. Correa, who was still the youngest player in baseball at that time, said, I feel like I've become a mature pitcher. I'm not just a 19-year-old kid living out a fantasy. We look young, we are young, but we think like old men, which is, (laughs) you'll love to hear that. You'll love to hear that. He's not a 19-year-old kid living out of fantasy. He's a 20-year-old veteran. Yeah, totally different. Totally different. Through his first 10 games, he held batters to a 196 average. Through a three-hit shutout at Yankee Stadium just a few days after his 20th birthday, he said, I don't know how I did it. I was fighting myself. My mind wasn't really there. He sounds like a grizzled veteran at this point. The reason why his mind wasn't really there is that he was not used to pitching on Friday nights. Ed was a devoutly religious Seventh-day Adventist, and it was against his beliefs to pitch on the Sabbath. The faith holds that on the Sabbath, you don't do secular work, and that goes from Friday evening until Saturday evening. In 1982, when Correa joined the White Sox, he had told a scout that he preferred not to pitch on the Sabbath, and he said that the scout laughed at him. He said, after that, I was afraid to say anything, and I was frustrated. So at the end of the 1986 season, Ed talks with his agent and says, what do I do about this? He was clearly wasn't comfortable with the Rangers even, even though he had that three-hit shutout. His scout said, talk to Texas about it. Don't be afraid. Tom Grieve said, I don't look at it as an ideal situation, but we'll do everything in our power to work out the rotation. It's not just an attempt by a kid to get out of pitching on Friday night or Saturday afternoon. He is deeply religious. The Rangers ended up agreeing, at least initially, to this request. And it helped that they had Charlie Huff, who you don't really need to rearrange your schedule. Uh, if you could just throw a 46 year old Charlie Huff out there to three rest. <laughs> he can throw knuckleballs every single day of the week. So there's no problem there. And there's a few other examples of pitchers taking days off for religious reasons. Christy Matheson never pitched on Sundays. Sandy Koufax regularly pitched on the Sabbath, but he didn't pitch on the first day of Passover when the Passover Seder is held. And he also famously didn't pitch in World Series Game 1 of 1965 when it coincided with Yom Kippur. So there's some history of doing this, but the Rangers after 1986 said that they would do their best to to meet this request. Correa, even though he wasn't necessarily comfortable throwing on Fridays, had that great opening run of his first 10 starts, and he went 4-3 and with a 2.7 ERA during that opening stretch. And he was getting some really positive comparisons. Earlier, he was compared to Doc Gooden. Carlton Fisk said, Correa looked like Cy Young to me. The few times I faced him, he hasn't made a mistake. He threw a couple of 3-2 changes as good as you can throw them. Sparky Anderson said he had more pitches than Roger Clemens. But it wasn't all rosy. Of course, there's some ups and downs with a 20-year-old pitcher. He had a run of nine games where he gave up more than six runs seven times. That was in the middle of the season, Then he goes on another good run to close out the season. His last 10 starts, ERA back down under three. He went five and five, but again, is holding batters under a 200 average. Gave up some walks, but is generally pretty effective. He finished the season 12 and 14, and the Rangers finished with 87 wins in second place behind the Angels. And Correa was on the American League leaderboard, ninth in strikeouts with 189, and that was a Rangers rookie record. But he was also second in walks and second in wild pitches behind only teammate Bobby Witt. Probably a, a, so a very exciting year uh, behind the plate as a Ranger, p- perhaps Gino Petrali or Don Slott. 
with that young pitching staff and the rest of this young team, Ruben Sierra, Incavilia, Oda B. McDowell, the future seems pretty bright. And in the offseason before the 1987 season, Ed was supposed to rest. The team asked him not to play too much in the offseason. So wait until the Puerto Rican League playoffs in, in January before you start pitching. But in December, he was reportedly throwing. Also in that offseason, he got some good news that he would get his Friday evenings and Saturday day games off. And that agreement may have also been motivated by Texas's desire to sign another young pitcher, Ramser Correa, who was Ed's brother. Ramser was 6'5", and the Rangers competed with many teams to sign him. In the end, he signed with the Brewers. He played 11 seasons in the minors, making it as high as AAA, never did make the majors. And in 1987, Ed Correa was back and ready to start for the Rangers. He was going to be the number two starter behind Charlie Huff. The Rangers lost game one, won game two, lost game three, and they never got over 500 again for the rest of the season. Unfortunate follow-up to the 1986 season. Ed had a couple decent starts. On April 28th, the day before his 21st birthday, he took a no-hitter into the eighth inning against the Yankees. That was broken up by a Willie Randolph single. The Rangers won 3-1, to one, but the Yankees were not impressed. Ricky Henderson said, we beat ourselves. We just didn't hit the ball. If he throws that way again, he'll never beat us. Don Mattingly said, I don't want to take anything away from a guy who's thrown a two-hitter, but if he's honest, he'll say he didn't have his best stuff. I've seen him with better stuff in the past. And it's true, he had thrown a really good game against the Yankees in 1986, but Correa didn't appreciate the comments. Let's make this clear. Ricky said I didn't have anything and that they beat themselves when I threw the shutout in 1986, too. I just hope they keep beating themselves every time I pitch. That's some good trash talk. I like to hear it. Unfortunately, it all kind of fell apart in May. Ed reported shoulder pain, and he went 0-4 in six starts with an ERA over 11 that month. He got a couple wins in June, but he gave up 19 earned runs in 19 innings. He said his arm was dead. The Rangers tried to fix his mechanics. They tried to change his throwing angle, but nothing worked. They also asked Edwin to pitch on a Saturday. After they had made that agreement in the offseason, they asked him to pitch a 5.30 start on a Saturday. Ed was confused and not happy with this. He thought that they had a deal. Bobby Valentine said, maybe we need to know that baseball is important to him too, which is not cool. Not cool, Bobby. Particularly with what we learn about how Ed was feeling that season. That game that they asked him to pitch, he didn't pitch well. He had one of his worst starts, giving up three home runs and five earned runs that game. He made only one start in July, lasting three innings at Yankee Stadium. Afterwards, the Rangers ordered x-rays and a CAT scan. They found a stress fracture of the scapula starting in the tricep. So he had been pitching with a broken arm, and he was still throwing 90 miles per hour with a broken arm. So clearly, Bobby's not thoughtful comments about religion <laughs> also maybe ignored that Ed was going through some some real physical struggles as well. He ends up shut down for the rest of the season, and his line on the back of this card looks really bad. 15 games, 70 innings, a 7.59 ERA. Yeah, bad season in many ways. Doctors said that this fracture was very rare, but the prognosis was good, and he started throwing again in January 1988. Seems a little fast to me. He was ready for spring training. Bobby Valentine was excited to have Ed and Jose Guzman 
and Bobby Witt back together again. He said they're further along than they've been in any spring that I've seen them. But in late March, Ed had pain again. He visited Frank Job, who suggested exploratory surgery to figure out what the issue was. And the Rangers, they're not sure about it. They asked for a second opinion. Second opinion says, do the surgery. Third opinion says, do the surgery. And Ed decides not to. He goes back to Puerto Rico and visits a Dr. Castillo. And Dr. Castillo was a faith healer and a dentist. Okay. So he's a doctor. (laughs) He's a doctor. I I mean, I guess technically I'm a doctor too, but don't trust me with your arm injuries. Castillo (laughs) realigned Correa's jaw and also performed acupuncture. And he ends up back throwing and pitching well, expecting to rejoin the Rangers around the All-Star break. But then in June, he had to have surgery to repair torn cartilage. While the acupuncture may have made him feel better, it didn't necessarily fix all of his arm problems. He tries to come back in February of 1989, but the pain sidelines him again. Rotator cuff surgery is suggested, but Correa tries a weight training program instead. He makes it back to competitive ball in the U.S. for the first time since 1987 at Rookie League, but after only eight innings, he's shut down again. And so I, I suggested mm. earlier that the the lines on his baseball reference are pretty, there's major gaps here. So after <laughs> 1989, there's three years where it's marked as did not play in major or minor leagues. One of them for an injury, two of them as out of baseball. He was granted free agency after the 1989 season and sued the Rangers doctors for malpractice for them failing to diagnose his stress fracture. And he signed a minor league deal with the Dodgers, but didn't play until 1993, as you mentioned. So what's happening in those gaps? He was trying to get better. He was trying to strengthen his arm. In 1990, he actually had a baseball card with the Vero Beach Dodgers, where he's holding a baseball bat, but he never played for that team. He didn't play for them until 1993. At that point, he's split time between A and AA, had an ERA near five, and decides to keep trying, but ends up going into coaching. He's the pitching coach for the Dodgers rookie league team in 1995. And then he comes back in 1997, pitches five innings at Vero Beach. And then finally, as a 35-year-old, he pitched for an independent team, the Allentown Ambassadors. But he never really caught on. He didn't really have full seasons at any of those places. 1993 was the most he had pitched since that injury in 1987, he, he appeared in 12 games in 1993. So just a lot of empty lines. 1994, he apparently played in Mexico, but there's no line on baseball reference for his stats there. So closing the book on Ed Correa, three years in the major leagues with 52 games pitched, ERA of 5.16, a record of 16 wins and 19 losses, 260 strikeouts in 282 innings, and an ERA plus of 85. How about in retirement? Correa had two sons from his first marriage. He later remarried and had two more children. He was a coach for the Dodgers organization, helping out at their academy in the Dominican Republic. And what he saw at that academy made him both optimistic, but also made it clear to him that Puerto Rico was running behind other Central American and Caribbean countries. And he saw a declining number of Puerto Rican players in Major League Baseball. But teams were setting up academies all throughout the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, and he thought this could maybe work in Puerto Rico. There wasn't a lot of high school competition in Puerto Rico, and 
those players from Puerto Rico were now subject to the draft. So teams could go to the Dominican or other countries and sign free agents still. But if you played in Puerto Rico, you had to go through the major league draft. So Correa decided to start a school to help kids both get a diploma and also train for a career in baseball. In 2001, he goes to Major League Baseball and he talks to Sandy Alderson, who at the time was Bud Selig's executive vice president for baseball operations, and tells him about his plan. And at first, Major League Baseball says, you go figure this out. See if you can get this started. Get some independent fundraising. Well, Ed goes back to Puerto Rico and he does it. He ends up the co-founder of the Puerto Rican Baseball Academy in high school, which is in Garabo, Puerto Rico. 30 miles outside of San Juan. The initial class had over a thousand students try out for a hundred spots. Curriculum includes the usual Spanish, English, math, history, but also electives like journalism, history of baseball, analysis of chess. By 2002, MLB comes back and sees what Ed has started down in Puerto Rico, and they decide to invest $250,000 a year. 2004 is the first graduating class, they sent nine players to the major league draft. And Ed was given a lot of credit for the success of this school and for his hard work and, and building a school from the bottom up. He said, it brings me peace to know I'm returning to baseball what it gave me. It gives me great satisfaction hearing a parent say, thank you for giving my son discipline. I get the same thrill as I did starting at Yankee Stadium and throwing a shutout. A lot of these players were traveling from all over Puerto Rico sometimes traveling 90 minutes in the morning to get to the school. It took a lot of dedication and a lot of hard work for a lot of the players to just get to school, get to class. There is a fee to enter the school, but there's also a scholarship program. And I believe that Major League Baseball has contributed to that scholarship program. Unfortunately, in 2009, there was a dispute. The school had grown, more students had been drafted, and the board of the school, which at the time included folks like Omar Minaya, who worked for the Mets, and other well-connected baseball folks, they thought that there was some impropriety with donated scholarship money. And so they fired Edwin and his wife from the school. Correa sued the school for wrongful termination. And I didn't find what ended up happening with that, but it was a sad split after so much success. I didn't find anything suggesting there was criminal impropriety. There was no criminal investigation. So it might've just been a disagreement, just a, a very sad split and something that is really unfortunate. As of 2021, Ed worked for the federal government and he was living in Caguas. And on his LinkedIn, it says he's a sport advisor, financial advisor, graphic designer, and saxophone player. So he did not Ooh. delve into his musical capabilities. David, here's someone who only played three years in the majors, but a really deep and rich story in this Sabre bio and in baseball reference and everywhere else. Now that we've looked a little more into him, what do we think? He had one full season in the majors, and that season was full of promise. If you take out that middle third, he had a great season, and he was only 20 years old. He was out of Major League Baseball by 21 due to some terrible injury luck and maybe bad advice. And yet, in his post-playing career, he has done so much for youngsters in Puerto Rico. We talked about that other Correa, Carlos. Carlos Correa went to the academy that Edwin Correa founded. And Carlos was the first number one pick from that school. Number one overall. Would go on to win the Rookie of the Year, a World Series with an asterisk, and now sign a six-year, $200 million deal with the Twins. As of now, there are 97 players from the school in baseball reference. 
Edwin was, wasn't with the school in 2013 to see Hiram Burgos become the first academy player to make it to the big leagues. Ten players have made it thus far. And I wonder if that happens if a guy like Ed doesn't have a vision for a baseball academy. When he was playing, he didn't have a ton of money. He couldn't throw a million dollars at a school. He had to go and, and fundraise and find people who were interested and trusted his vision. And he had that determination to find funding and make it happen. And I wonder if Carlos Correa or some of these other players, Christian Vasquez, make it to the majors, get discovered, if not for that vision. That's a good question. And luckily, Ed did make it happen. What a great story to hear. And so thank you for that. Thank you again to Malcolm Allen for the Sabre bio. And thank you to you at home. If you're a famous jazz pianist and electric keyboarder, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.